you've said that if you want to be a chef, you have to be obsessed with food. And I even heard you spend quite a lot of time dissecting the practice of taking a single bite out of a Reese's peanut butter cup. When you take a bite of the Reese's, first, there's two sort of like tactile things that happen. One, those little ridges kind of poke up into your lip. And then underneath, the chocolate's super thin and your tongue can actually press into the peanut butter. You get chocolate, 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 and then you get salty peanut butter. And just the that salty mixed with that sweet, it's such a perfect bite. The ratio is perfect. Reese's, I think, are one of the most like well-designed candies in the world. And we're talking about the original low, wide, flat Reese's peanut butter cup, not the more newfangled, less good, tall one. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what that is. That doesn't even like when I'm in Seven Eleven, I can't even see that thing. <laughs> this is the Sporkful. It's not for foodies. It's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Today, I'm talking with Duff Goldman. He started out as the star of Ace of Cakes on Food Network. Now he's on Buddy vs. Duff, Duff's Happy Fun Bake Time, and Kids Baking Championship. He's known for his goofy, childlike enthusiasm, evidenced by the time he told one young competitor to hit him in the face with a pie. Come here, Jane. See that pie right there? Yeah. Go and grab that pie. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I signed up for this, Jane. Give it to me right in the face. (laughs) Duff's also known for making extravagant, over-the-top cakes. They're almost edible sculptures or art installations. Like the time he made a life-size motorcycle cake, complete with revving engine and fake exhaust coming out of the tailpipe. A lot of detail goes into making these cakes. So maybe I shouldn't be surprised that Duff has even more opinions about Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Like, opening the package of a Reese's used to be a lot more pleasant. Uh, now that, like, they use this weird sort of plastic cellophane, it's not as fun. It used to kind of have, like, the envelope fold underneath, right? Yeah, it had that. And you could slide your pinky and pop it open. Remember that? You would just mm, sit. Yeah. Right? And then, so, once you get the, the Reese's out of the package, peeling the paper off without knocking off some of the serrated chocolate. That's the trick, right? You're talking about, about the paper cup that it's sitting yeah. in. It's like peeling a sticker, right? You got you to gotta just get your thumb right on it, peel that paper back. Then when you grab the paper and you pull it off and it goes click, 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 click. You know, and like, All the way it's the not perimeter. like a smooth, it doesn't just go, whoosh, it goes, right? And that's a, that's a nice little sensation. It's interesting that you are so focused on the tactile experience of eating a Reese's peanut butter cup. Like, I think it's telling that that's something that you are so attuned to because you come from a long line of artistic people, like a long line of makers who have made things that you can feel and touch and interact with. Yeah, my great-grandmother was a milliner. She made like ladies' hats back in the 30s when she came to this country. She was also a weaver. She had this huge loom and she would make all this stuff. And she was a baker. She was a really good baker. She taught me how to make uh, phyllo dough. And then my grandmother was a uh, a silversmith, uh, an enamel smith, and a photographer. My mom is a, uh, she's a stained glass artist and uh, she does mosaics. And I was a graffiti artist and a metal sculptor. But, you know, and then I moved to to cooking um, which, you know, I find is one of the most challenging uh, of arts because 
with um, painting, for example, right? You paint a picture, people look at it, and you're trying to elicit an emotional response just by what they're looking at. With cooking, you taste it, you smell it, you see it, you touch it. You're so intimately involved with food. And you eat it. You take something and you put it inside of your own body, which is, you know, kind of a weird thought. Like, you don't really think about that too much. Right. I, I haven't eaten many paintings, but it would be a different way to interact with art. Yeah, 100%. Right. wouldn't taste good, <laughs> right? 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 Water lilies are a little, <laughs> a little bitter. <laughs> Food has to connect with every sense. It has to work in so many different ways. Yeah, and like, what what's going to taste better? Like, super fried, crunchy, crinkle-cut French fries on a ceramic plate versus a plastic red basket with a piece of wax paper in the bottom of it. Plastic red basket. A hundred percent, right? That's just, that's part <laughs> of the experience. Duff's been thinking a lot about food since he was a kid. Growing up, he'd hang out in the kitchen while his mom cooked. She'd turn on their little black and white kitchen TV, and together they'd watch the classic food shows of the 70s and 80s. Chef Tell, The Frugal Gourmet, and Julia Child. I just thought they were hilarious, right? I was a little kid, and I'm like, these these adults are funny and different than all the other adults that I know. All the adults that I know are miserable people, and these guys seem like they're having a pretty good time. <laughs> Kids love seeing things made and seeing things done. It looks like magic. When he was 13, Duff found something that combined his artistic roots with his nonstop craving for fun, graffiti. He'd sketch his paintings, then work up the nerve to paint them outside for real on a cement culvert underneath the street a few miles from his house. So I snuck down there one night and I did like my first piece and it was terrible. It just said duh in block letters, you know. So then I went back and I painted over it and they did it again. And they did it again. I just I kept going over and over. And my mom was like, Where you know, where are you going every day? I'm like, oh, I'm just riding my bike around doing stuff. So what what was not good about it? I it just wasn't very creative and it was sloppy. You know, it's like graffiti. Just like everything else, I mean, you really have to you have to practice, and uh, you know, eventually, I got pretty good at it. And then I started like doing buses and trains and things that I really shouldn't have been painting on. <laughs> <laughs> what did you like about it? It was fun to break the law. It's, you know, it was fun to go sneak out. You know, it's fun to like be part of this like secret club that like not a lot of people knew about. And you're making these incredible, beautiful paintings. You know what I mean? Like, you know, really nice stuff where like, you know, I went down on that culvert and there was like all kinds of bad words and, you know, just stupid stuff that was put on the, on the wall and like to cover it up with something colorful and beautiful was like, you know, Oh yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing a good job. I'm making it better, but it was fun. I mean, I'm not recommending that you go do it. It's, incredibly dangerous. But also kind of fun. But it was kind of fun. <laughs> it was kind of fun. When you're 13, 14 years old and you like jump a 12-foot fence into a train yard and spray paint a train and you might get chased by the cops, you might get chased by dogs, you might get chased by other graffiti writers. Like, I think one of the things that it did for me was like, I'm not really scared of much. You know, I don't have a lot of fear and I think that like conquering those fears when you're when you're that age, it sticks with you. Walking out onto a stage, for example, and there's two thousand people, and I'm gonna you know improv two hours of just whatever. Uh, you know, it would scare a lot of people. Like I just don't have that fear. Like I walk out, I'm like, all right, let's do this. 
you got so into graffiti art that you needed more money for spray paint. You you worked at a bagel shop. You got in trouble for making the sandwiches too big. So you got a job at McDonald's. Yeah. When you worked at McDonald's, you also got in trouble for putting your own spin on the fries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I just, listen, I just thought that they needed like another 25 seconds. <laughs> so, and every time the beeper would go off, I'd turn the alarm off and I would stand there. And you wanted them to be a little more, a little golden brown, a little crispier. Tiny bit more. They weren't into it. <laughs> <laughs> you mean we, this multinational, multi-billion-dollar global conglomerate that may be best known of all things for the consistency of its French fries didn't want teenage Duff Goldman to put his own spin on the fries? Listen, people make mistakes, right? <laughs> you know, people make mistakes. And well, who was making the just... mistakes in the scenario? You or McDonald's? McDonald's. They knew. Like... <laughs> <laughs> but but, but we, we see a consistent through line of um, you had a lot of your own ideas about the way you thought that these restaurants should be operating. A hundred percent. After his time at McDonald's, Duff decided he wanted to make more of a go at cooking. He was still in college at the time, so he applied for an apprenticeship at a fine dining restaurant in Baltimore. But his only experience cooking to that point was at McDonald's. So the head chef was skeptical. She decided to start him out on something basic cornbread and biscuits. Nothing but cornbread and biscuits. And I did it every day for two years. And I, I was like, I was born to do this. This is what I want to do. Absolutely just fell in love with baking. Yeah. Why? What was it about baking? For me, it was like a little more thoughtful. And it was like less immediate than cooking. Cooking is like a fast, you know, bang, 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 you know, like when you're cooking on the line. Right. You're throwing stuff in a pan over the fire and it's done in a few minutes. Yeah. You know, and I love like, by the way, I love to cook. Right. I'm, I love to cook and I'm good at it. Um, but for like baking, the thing that really kind of got me was it was a little more cerebral. Um, you know, I'm, I was a philosophy major, so I'm I like to think and overthink and analyze and over it. But I'm Jewish. So, you know, I just <laughs> obsess about everything and I'm constantly like, you know, what's going on here? What's going on? You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm a neurotic Jew and I love baking because there's so many things to be neurotic about. You know, it's funny because I'm, <laughs> I'm also a neurotic Jew and I think I dislike baking for the same reason. <laughs> Be because, you know, I, I like the immediacy of like, when, when you're cooking in a pan, the heat, and it's all going to be done soon, and it, it it makes it impossible to overthink it. I overthink other things. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably have a good outlet, right, that you right. overthink, <laughs> right. right? Right? There's something else in your life that you get to completely obsess about and just, you know, be, be who you are. And so you're like, I don't want to do that with baking because I have it other places and I need a break. Right. Right. No, that, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Like I, I obsess about like the podcast or my job or like work, life and work things, you know. Uh, so for me, cooking is like meditation. It's like the it's like the escape from that. Mm. So uh, soon after spending two years making cornbread, you end up at the French Laundry, one of the preeminent fine dining destinations in the world. Um, it's famous for great food, but also famous for being a very intense place to work. <laughs> yeah. It's intense. It was intense. Yeah. I would imagine they don't want you to tweak their French fry recipe. Uh-uh. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and I didn't try. I didn't try. <laughs> you know, right? You get in there, you just like, 
You do this exactly how they showed you how to do it. Don't change anything. And even if you don't like the method, just do it until you like it. And, and what did you learn from that experience there? One thing I learned is that it's that kind of environment is not a very good fit for me. I mean, you can probably imagine that would be a square peg in <laughs> right. a round hole. In right? retrospect, it seems obvious, but I'm a goofball. Right. I'm a big, I'm a clown. But I tell you though, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. It was just incredible. And I think the thing that I loved about it was seeing the pursuit of excellence, right? Seeing people who are really, really trying to make everything perfect and exactly the way that they're envisioning it, you know, and really like when we were talking about the, the Reese's peanut butter cup, same thing. It's like people really uh, thinking about all the little things that go into every bite, you know, and seeing that, I think really kind of like, like awakened me just to its existence. It just like, understanding that that level of dedication could be there. I saw a quote where you said that you, you learned the depth of yourself there at French Laundry. Tell me about that. Well, you learn, um, you know, you're doing this very, very intense thing, you know, and every plate has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. Your first plate of the night, you're like, all right, let's do this. You know, and you make your first plate and it goes out and you're like, awesome. Making your last plate with that same intensity and that same energy, that's where you learn about yourself. So at the French Laundry, Duff saw what it was like to pursue perfection. He realized he could summon that intensity. But as he said, he also learned that was not the environment for him. After about a year, he decided to leave. I was in a dark place. I had decided a long time ago, like, I want to be a chef. This is what I want to do. And I, I get a job at the French Laundry, which for me was like it's, like... it's like getting into Harvard. Yeah, like, this is the best restaurant in the world. Why would I ever want to leave? Like, I made it. I made it. I'm doing it. And I'm there. And I was like, I, I don't think I can do this. I was having an existential crisis. Like... Like this thing that I thought that I loved, if this was the pinnacle of what it is, I don't want to be there. It's like, well, then now what? Coming up, how did Duff go from existential crisis to food TV stardom? He'll tell us. Stick around. Hope you're hungry, because it's time for some ads. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman, and I've got some exciting news for you. The Sporkful is nominated for a Webby Award. This is a big deal in the world of podcasting, so I would really appreciate it if you could please take a quick second and vote for us. You can do it right now while you're listening. To vote, just head on over to sporkful.com slash Webby's. We even made that redirect for you, so you don't need to hunt around the Webby's page. Okay, you will need to make an account. It's a little annoying, I know, but we'll really appreciate it. So you go to that link, set yourself up, vote. It's real quick. Again, sporkful.com com slash webbies vote for the sporkful and get all your friends to do the same thanks okay back to food network star duff goldman after the french laundry duff was at a loss he says he felt broken 
He packed up and moved out to Colorado, crashed on a friend's couch, did a lot of snowboarding. Pretty soon, he ran out of money. And it just so happened that a local hotel was looking for a pastry chef. I was like, man, I, I, I've never worked in a hotel, first of all, and I do not want to be the pastry chef of a hotel. I am burnt. I'm done. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a quivering hunk of meat. But I went in and I was like, maybe I can, I can convince this guy to just like let me bake bread, right? Because baking bread is one of, it's one of my favorite things to do. And if I could just go to the hotel and get there at like two in the morning and bake all the bread and leave before anybody else comes in, I don't even have to deal with anybody else. Just go in, bake bread, it'd be the perfect existence. But the head chef, Jesse Lapitan, talked Duff into baking much more than bread. Duff took the job as the hotel's pastry chef, and he and Jesse got close. He just kind of like took me under his wing, and he taught me how to do it, and he fixed me. He kind of showed me that it's fun again. We had, we had a great team there, and everybody was you know really fun and supportive and cool, and we were always like playing jokes on each other, and he like showed me the joy again. Duff got back to chasing that joy. He moved back to Baltimore and was working as a personal chef. But at this point, getting a Food Network show hadn't even crossed his mind because he was busy pursuing a completely different dream, being a rock star. He plays bass and drums. He and his buddies formed a band, and they were doing well. They played bigger venues, opened for some pretty well-known groups, Clutch, Linkin Park. But being a personal chef wasn't compatible with the life of a rocker. So I quit that job uh, and I started making cakes in my apartment so I could pay the rent. But then if I was the one making the cakes, I could decide when not to work. And so that way I could be on tour or make a record or, you know, do the things I needed to do to be in a band. That cake shop Duff was running out of his apartment would become Charm City Cakes. The bakery where Ace of Cakes, the Food Network show that made him famous, would eventually be set. Back in those early days, Charm City Cakes was a very different place. Duff hired some of the guys in his band to work there and some friends from the local art school. He describes it as a motley crew of eccentric weirdos making increasingly eccentric cakes. And pretty soon, they came up with another eccentric idea. Let's do a live cooking show on stage. And unlike Duff's later work, let's make it not at all family friendly. He called it F.U. Let's Bake, but not the PG way I'm saying it. And at one point he would strip down to nothing but a cup and have the audience throw raw eggs at him. Beyond that, the whole thing was just weird. I would like make a cake, the lights would go out, the lights would come back on, there'd be a team of ninjas and I'd have to like fight the ninjas while I was like making little flowers <laughs> or like I would make souffle you know, for everybody. And I would make the entire place be super quiet because the souffles were in the oven and everybody had to whisper, right? And like, so, you know, like really like fun, but also like not family-friendly comedy. <laughs> F.U. Let's Bake may not have been ready for prime time, but it showed that Duff had major star potential. His brother was a TV producer and helped him shop around a demo reel. Eventually, they landed the Food Network show Ace of Cakes, which debuted in 2006. It showed Duff and his friends at work at Charm City Cakes, creating ever bigger, crazier, more complex cakes. This week, we are making a working replica of a brand new roller coaster called... With Duff, the cake that just sits there is never enough. We need a customizable working roller coaster model. <laughs> I want the roller coaster to actually go through the cake. All right, go team. Even though he now had a TV show, Duff still stuck to that DIY lifestyle. He would drive halfway across the country to deliver a cake himself, sleeping in his car along the way and using his engine to heat up canned foods for snacks. 
Duff often decorated his cakes using edible spray paint, so all that graffiti work came in handy. And it prepared him for working on a large canvas, whether it's a highway overpass or a cake model of Hogwarts. Duff was known to bust out blowtorches and power tools in the cake shop. This was the kind of fun he was looking for. Duff became one of the country's best-known cake makers. So I had to take some time in our conversation to debate the finer points of his work. Buttercream or fondant? You know. Wait, sorry, first question. Do you say fondant or fondant? Come on, man. <laughs> it's fondant. Fondant? It's not fondant, right? That's not how you say it. Okay. All right. Okay, fair enough. Fondant. So buttercream versus fondant, which is better and why? You know, my friend, those two are not mutually exclusive. Right. So the thing about fondant is that I liken it to uh, a banana peel, right? A banana peel looks pretty. It kind of changes colors. They're nice to look at. It keeps the banana from getting beat up and bruised. It keeps it moist. It keeps the banana good. So you bake a cake, you cover it in buttercream, and then you cover it in fondant. The fondant keeps it moist, keeps it together, makes it look cool. Then when it's time to eat it, you peel off the fondant, you eat all the good stuff underneath. So when you eat a cake covered in fondant, you don't eat the fondant? No. It's gross. What's your ideal ratio of frosting to cake in a bite? I'd probably say like three to one cake to frosting. Okay. I mean, to me, the cake is like a frosting conduit. Too much frosting's gross, man. Like, too, like when you get a cupcake and it's got like three inches of, of you know, cold buttercream on top, that's just, the, that's just dumb. I feel like as I've gotten older, my ratio has changed. Maybe a couple decades ago, I would have wanted it like 50-50. But mm. now I more want it three parts cake to one part buttercream. But I do, I do put a lot of thought when you have a multi-layer cake and then you have the, the back side of the slice that has the exterior frosting. Mm-hmm. I, you got to put a lot of thought into how you sort of carve out your bites so that you're spreading the frosting evenly and equitably throughout the bites. Do you have a strategy for that? What I'll try to do is like I'll take my fork and get a little bit of the backside and then take a bite of a thing. And then I almost use the backside like a reservoir. You know, it's like, like, that's, that's a pro move right there. In 2011, Ace of Cakes came to an end after 10 seasons. He left the Baltimore location of Charm City Cakes in the hands of his trusted employees and moved out to LA to open a West Coast branch of the bakery. It was a big leap for him, maybe his biggest yet. Around the time he was getting ready to make this move, he was profiled in the Baltimore Sun newspaper. And he said, quote, I would be stupid if I wasn't nervous. I'd be stupid if I wasn't scared. But being nervous and scared are great motivators. There's nothing like painting yourself into a corner to motivate yourself to perform. I asked him how it felt to hear that quote today, 10 years later. And he traced that feeling of fear even further back. When I quit my job as a personal chef and I woke up the next day, uh... I had no paycheck and I had enough money in my bank account that I could pay my bills for about two months if I didn't sell a single cake. And I was like, all right, I got two months to start making money. You just don't have a choice. Like, I don't have a choice. I have to succeed. I understand that kind of that kind of fear early in your career. But in 2011, at that point, you're a TV star. Charm City Cakes is doing well. You're moving to L.A., so I think that some people would be surprised to hear that you were still 
scared or nervous about that? I'm still terrified of stuff, you know? And, but, but the thing is, and like we were talking about this earlier about sort of like jumping those train yards and, you know, being terrified. The thing is, is that you never stop being terrified because you're still doing stupid stuff, but you learn how to deal with it. You know, I think you, you learn how to operate within, uh, you know, or just in spite of being afraid or, be, you know, being scared or being nervous, being anxious about something, you know, you just, you learn how to do it. I'm, always scared of stuff when I walk out, you know, if I have a new show, if I'm, you know, investing in something now, you know I mean? Like, you know, there's always like scary stuff that I'm like, if this doesn't go right, I might be working at Chili's in a year, you know, <laughs> like it still happens. See, it's interesting because I, I, I'm sure some people would hear that and be like, oh, come on. Like you, you you've reached a level of, like, I, I don't want to deny, of course, like you have every right to feel however you feel. And I'm sure that those feelings are real. But then I think it's also to the average person, they would think, oh, but ha hasn't Duff reached a level of success that like, yeah, the future is unknown and, and there's always risk, but that, you know, you're going to find your way. And I think it's just interesting to hear you say that there are still things that you're very scared of. Uh, I mean, I've almost gone bankrupt a couple times. You know, running a business is hard. And there was a few times when I, I was close to bankruptcy. And I was, you know, just didn't know what to do. Didn't know what to do. And that can happen again. You know, I mean, is it's much less likely, I'd say today than it was 15 years ago, but it can still happen again. You know, it really could. I think uh, one of the, one of the biggest lessons I got was when I left the French laundry, there was a good few months of living on the couch, living off of my credit cards and just not caring about much. And I got myself into some crazy debt, crazy credit card debt. And I worked my tail off. I worked six days a week. I lived in a, you know, little apartment and I just like paid off all that stuff because it's terrifying, right? When you're getting letters from creditors and like that, that whole period scared the bejesus out of me. And so that fear has never left me. It's always there. These days, as I said, Duff stars in several Food Network shows, including Kids Baking Championship. He's kind of known as the food TV host who all the kids love, even though he's usually the one in charge of telling the young contestants which one of them has been eliminated. He and his wife have a one-year-old daughter now, and I wonder how his experience breaking bad news to kids will inform his parenting. Is your wife going to be like, well, Duff, you're going to tell her that she's grounded. You know how to do it. You know, <laughs> you're going to tell her there's no dessert for a week. I don't, man, I don't know if I could do it. You know, I it'd just... be cool if you unveiled your punishments in the style of kids baking championship eliminations. <laughs> <laughs> like very That's long, a dramatic great pause. idea. Maybe cut to commercial and then come back and then yeah. and then reveal what the punishment for the infraction will be. <laughs> And your punishment is move those rocks from that side of the yard to the other side of the yard. No! <laughs> Good luck, bakers. <laughs> Cut to confessional. My dad's such a jerk. <laughs> so Duff is successful. He runs a business. He's settled with his family. To an outsider, it might actually look like the guy who only ever wanted to have fun is all grown up. But he hasn't totally surrendered to adulthood. He still plays music in a band called... Bear with me, Foie Grock, although they're thinking of changing it to Bread Zeppelin. 
He threw a Super Bowl party with a petting zoo. He actually kind of has a thing for petting zoos. He had one at his wedding, too. And speaking of that wedding, as you'd expect, he went all out when it came to his wedding cakes. And yes, that's cakes, plural. He had three. First one, simple, traditional tiered cake. The second one was an underwater scene, more like something you'd see at Charm City Cakes. And the third one was actually made out of meat. <laughs> the bottom tier was meatloaf. The next tier was meatballs. The next tier was shawarma. And the top tier was scrapple. And then we iced the whole thing in mashed potatoes. Uh, we made a, <laughs> a bunch of, <laughs> right? Because when you get like, when you whip mashed potatoes, you can actually pipe it out like buttercream. Oh my God. Uh, and then we made a bunch of roses out of bacon and like roasted them. So they like came out like there were these like little crispy bacon roses all over the, the cake. And then the bride and groom on top were hot dogs. <laughs> And uh, we made their clothes out of like shaved deli meat. Like, so we got like mortadella and like all this stuff, and, like made their clothes out of deli meat. Oh my God. And, uh, and then next to it, we got a chocolate fountain and we filled it with canned gravy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just going to say it. That sounds delicious. It was amazing. <laughs> so good. <laughs> That's Duff Goldman, star of Buddy vs. Duff, Kids Baking Championship, and Duff's Happy Fun Bake Time. He also recently published his first kids' cookbook called Super Good Baking for Kids. And Duff will be showing off his cooking skills for the first time on TV in an upcoming new show called Ace of Taste that launches on Food Network April 24th. Next week on the show, we visit a pizzeria that's almost as famous for its long lines as it is for its pizza. Does all that waiting make the pizza taste better once you finally get it? Or does a long line just mean one very cranky podcast host? We'll find out. That's next week. While you're waiting for that one, check out last week's show about spam and why a canned meat that came from America feels so distinctly Filipino. Finally, please don't forget to vote for us for a Webby Award. It'll just take a minute. That link again is sporkful.com slash Webbies. Thanks. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. The show is mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Hannah Knox in Estes Park, Colorado, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. 